Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. I'm still in my job, even if nobody else in politics is uh, today. Uh, Coming up on today's podcast... We go behind the scenes in the press gallery. I was back in the press gallery in the House of Commons for the first time in months this week. Uh, And it turns out journalists only have their own dedicated seats in the House of Commons thanks to The Times. We'll find out why as we open up the history books with The Times archivist Nick Mays. We've also got Carol Walker and Phil Webster uh, taking a trip down memory lane uh, too. In a moment, uh, we'll have our columnists, James Forsyth and Melanie Reid. But given all of the shenanigans which have happened uh, this week in number 10, I thought I just walk you through where we actually are as to who is still working in downstream. Yes, we're going to take a look through the Prime Minister's team and see if uh, they are still in number 10. Uh, Manira Mirza then, named by Boris Johnson in 2020, is one of the five most influential women in his life, alongside Malala, Kate Bush, Boudicca, and his grandmother, Manira Mirza, born in Oldham, the daughter of Pakistani immigrants. She studied a sociology PhD under Frank Ferredi, founder of the Revolutionary Communist Party, and she wrote for Marxist publications. She's been on quite a journey. After stints at the Royal Society of Arts and the centre-right think tank Policy Exchange, she started work at City Hall in 2008, became a deputy mayor under Boris Johnson, spent eight years heading up culture and education. She then helped write the manifesto that got Boris Johnson into number 10 and was then appointed his head of policy. But this week, she urged Boris Johnson to apologise for accusing Labour leader Keir Starmer of failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile when he was head of the Crown Prosecution Service. She said it was an inappropriate and partisan reference to a, to a horrendous case of child sex abuse. Boris Johnson refused. So, Manira Mirza, can you stay in number 10? No, no, no. There we are. Then we turn to Martin Reynolds, the Oxford-born Cambridge graduate who was a city lawyer before joining the Foreign Office to work as a civil servant in 1997. He rose to the ranks, becoming a diplomat, then principal private secretary in the uh, Treasury in 2014. Uh, oh, sorry, in the Foreign Office, that was. Then in 2016, Boris Johnson became foreign secretary there. They worked together. Got on our house on fire. Principal Foreign Secretary, then to the Prime Minister, followed. But, as we now know, on May the 20th in 2020, Martin Reynolds sent an email to Down Street staff. It read, It'd be nice to make the most of this lovely weather and have some socially distanced drinks. Please join us from G- 6 o'clock and bring your own booze. That uh, email, of course, leaked earlier this year. 
on January the 11th, the number 10 spokesperson said that Reynolds had the full confidence of the Prime Minister and would continue in his role. So, Martin Reynolds, can you stay in number 10? No, no, no. Then we move on to Dan Rosenfeld, the Mancunian product of Manchester Grammar School. He spent a year living as a hippie, apparently, in an Israeli kibbutz before graduating from University College London, studying German. In 2000, he became an advisor to the Treasury after graduating. He managed the budget for the 2012 London Olympics. He became Principal Private Secretary to Chancellor Alastair Darling in 2007, went on to become one of George Osborne's closest advisors during the coalition years. He left Whitehall in 2011, working for a private intelligence agency, until he somewhat surprisingly returned uh, to uh, as Downing Street Chief of Staff in 2021, replacing Dominic Cummings. Remember him? Uh, though he was a political appointee, his civil service background meant he was uh, he said to approach the job in dedication to public service. So, Dan Rosenfeld, can you stay in number 10? No, no, no. Then we turn to Jack Doyle, the son of a policeman. Jack Doyle was a lifelong journalist before starting in Downing Street. In fact, I used to work with him. He was Home Affairs correspondent at the Press Association and then went to work for the Daily Mail, uh, moving on to become associate political editor. He spent, uh, having spent £3 million on a TV studio for da- daily televised press briefings, it was then reported that Jack Doyle vetoed them. He's also been accused of several alleged breaches of COVID restrictions, attending numerous Downing Street parties. So, Jack Doyle, can you stay in number 10? No, no, no. And then to this morning, Elena Naronaski. Uh, she resigned this morning from the policy unit as well. She had been advising the PM on women inequalities, DCMS and extremism, having spent most of the last decade working in the Department of Education with, closely with Michael Gove. But can you stay in number 10? No, no, no. <laughs> sort of almost works, doesn't it? Almost works, almost works. Uh, right, so what is the mood then this morning in the Tory party? I spent last night and this morning firing up the WhatsApps uh, to get a sense of uh, the mood in the Conservative Party, both supporters of Boris Johnson and critics. Members of the Cabinet, ministers, junior, long-serving veteran MPs, and those elected in 2019. So this is what Tory MPs are telling me on their WhatsApps, voiced up by some of the most experienced actors in the land. I still think it will take time to unravel, but ultimately, yes, it's over. The problem is, an end is messy, long and full of risk. So it should be over, but I doubt it's even close. Most people can't count, and 54 is a big number. I can't see how he can survive. It feels like the Titanic. But Matt, it was always going to be like this. Aside from his personal character and trust, if he goes, do all my policy priorities and months and months of work disappear with him? I'm confident that if 54 letters are submitted, he would win a vote of all MPs easily. I suspect that opponents will struggle to get many more letters. It's mid-term Cummings-led ructions. I don't see him resigning. Labour, and especially that drippy Ed Davey, are about to learn the hard way you always have to be careful what you wish for. The open spat with the Chancellor is as fatal as it was for Maggie. Looking forward to Rishi's tweet that the sackings are all planned. So there we are. That was the uh, that was the messages uh, that I've been getting from across the Conservative Party. But what what is the mood? What is the mood uh, there this morning? Henry Zeffman, now the Associate Political Editor of The Times, joins me. Morning, Henry. Morning, Matt. Good to be with you. So that's what my WhatsApps were saying overnight. What are yours? What's your take on where we are this morning? Yeah, I'm getting a similar mix. I mean, the, look, the people who were loyal to Boris Johnson uh, remain loyal to Boris Johnson, but I think they are a bit, little bit less bullish that the man they're loyal to is going to survive. Um, 
I think I think in the cold light of day, because last night was so chaotic with all these people leaving. Um, I think the most significant thing from yesterday remains Rishi Sunak uh, and his uh, comments about uh, Jimmy Savile, or rather Boris Johnson's, his comments about Boris Johnson's comments about Keir Starmer's approach to Jimmy Savile. Um, because what you had there was the Chancellor declaring from a podium in 10 Downing Street uh, that something the Prime Minister had done was wrong. That's not normal, um, <laughs> to coin a phrase. Um, and, you know, I think there's two really significant things there. One is, you know, the Chancellor signalling to Conservative MPs and more broadly to the public that he's unhappy with something the Prime Minister did. But also, it is clear that he has made a judgment that Boris Johnson is not going to regain the authority that he had over his parliamentary party just a couple of months ago. Because if he thought there was any chance of Boris Johnson ever being in the commanding position he was in last summer when he carried out a brutal reshuffle and even joked privately about moving Rishi Sunak to health secretary, he wouldn't have made that comment. And I suppose, given how quietly loyal... I mean, he did go to Ilfracombe at a particularly bad time a couple of weeks ago, but given how quietly loyal uh, Rishi Sunak has been, and you know Rishi Sunak uh, well, how... This is a big... Even though it doesn't seem... You know, who writes it down doesn't look that dramatic. How significant is this moment? How much thought will have you been put into it? And does this suggest we might be on the path to Rishi Sunak wielding the knife? I think it's hugely significant, for sure. Uh, and, I, and I think a, a, an enormous amount of thought would have been put into it. You could tell that his choice of words was careful from the fact that he used it in answer to the first of the many inevitable questions about Savile. Uh, and then when he was subsequently asked the question, simply said, I've got nothing further to say. So it wasn't like an off-the-cuff emotional response, far from it. It was the thing that he had decided in advance he was going to say in answer to any and all questions about it. Um, but it's still harder to see him actually directly wielding the knife. I mean, I, I, I think it is, you know, if we are going to get a leadership challenge here, if we are going to get a potential change of prime minister, um, I think it is, remains much likelier to be brought about by uh, MPs forcing a confidence vote, at which point Boris Johnson's support could evaporate, or, as one of your WhatsApp said, he could simply win. Um, uh, win the support of more than half of his parliamentary party. Um, the the dog that hasn't barked throughout this whole saga, which is really fascinating to me, is there hasn't been any ministerial resignations. And that was a huge feature of the downfall of Theresa May, was ministers jumping off the ship left, right and centre. I mean, she went on for ages after that started happening, but it became a real feature <laughs> of the downfall. Um, I think if that were to start to happen, then that would take us quite quickly to a much more febrile base. But at the moment, the onus remains on backbench Conservative MPs. Um, did you... Uh, one of the striking things I found with the Jimmy Savile thing is that, and I think this is clearly the case with Manira Mirza, there were some people who thought that the party... Tory MPs thought the party thing was awful. They'd had, you know, dark moments thinking about how... You know, they hadn't seen family, attended funerals and so on while this was going on in Downing Street. But they thought it was a slightly silly... They worried it was a, it was a strange hill to die on. But actually, it's, it's, you know, it's not the individual things. It's the, you know, it's the, it's the old Finkelvich theory that, you know, none of this matters until it all matters. And that clearly for Manira Mirza, Jimmy Savile was the straw that broke the camel's back. Is, is there a sense, do you think, that 
maybe there needs to be a few more straws and that actually might tip quite a lot of Tory MPs? Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I think I think the real problem um, for Conservative MP or for the real problem for Johnson in Conservative MP's reaction to the Savile stuff is it gets so directly to their fears about him, which is that, you know, uh, whatever his election winning abilities, though, you know, if you look at the polling at the moment, those are very much in question. But whatever his past election winning abilities, you know, they do have concerns about his character and his seriousness um, and, and, and you know, thereby his fitness for the office of prime minister. And this all gets straight to that. Um, but also more prosaically, if you are a cabinet minister or a minister who occasionally is let loose on the media round, um you know, you have to defend anything and everything that the government and the prime minister do and say. Um, and this one is incredibly hard to defend. Um, and lots of ministers and cabinet ministers don't want to do it. Um, and Rishi Sunak opted out of doing it yesterday. Um, but that's not sustainable for a lot of ministers with less clout, uh, you know, who are not quite literally the Chancellor of the Exchequer. So um, I think I think it puts Boris Johnson in a very sticky position. He doesn't seem under any mood to retract it um, or retract it in a in, in the sort of <laughs> proper way that Manira Mirza clearly wanted him to. Um, and I think, you know, I really do think it, it, it's a real unforced error in a week where he could have done without one. So, so where do we go now, do you think? What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the wing of the party or the bit of the operation that we should be keeping the, the, the closest eye on? Well, I think the immediate question is, who on earth will take these jobs that are vacant? <laughs> um, it's a very know, good I, question. Director of Communications in 10 Downing Street, in theory, is is the pinnacle of the communications world, I suppose. Um, but uh, would you would you fancy doing that for six weeks? I mean, you know, I'm sure someone will. But will it be someone of the abilities, experience and clout to uh, transform Boris Johnson's uh, premiership? Um, I kind of doubt it. Uh, ditto chief of staff. Um, I'm sure there are people out there desperate to help Boris Johnson get back on track. But whether the kinds of people who might have the, some would say, uh, unique, uh, perhaps even elusive abilities to be able to make Boris Johnson function in office, you know, they're probably looking at this and thinking, don't fancy leaving a good job for what could be a few months or a few weeks. Um, so, you know, it will be fascinating to see who he can manage to get in. Um, and it will tell us a lot, I think, about how the broader conservative world views his chances of staying in office. Yeah, I mean, the, the, one of the most striking things was the, the extent to which uh, this week Linton Crosby, the man who helped Bosch Johnson become mayor, um, uh, advised, well, he actually did advise Theresa May on a 27 election campaign, which was slightly less successful. But the, the, the speed with which he made clear that he was not advising Boris Johnson, he was in Australia, which is as far away as he could possibly get from all of this. That's not, you, you know... For a man who likes to associate himself with with winners and showing that he he alone can turn things around, if even he thinks there's a lost lost cause, it's not a great advert for anyone else thinking of throwing their hat in the wind. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it also put me in mind of, and and to be clear, at the outset, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are very different forces. I'm not making a comparison between them, but uh, I remember in in my last couple of weeks as Washington correspondent, or more pertinently, uh, Donald Trump's last few weeks as president. Um, I remember after the sort of January the 6th uh, insurrection or whatever you want to call it, all these people, massive loyalists to the president uh, up to that point started, you know, jumping off the ship and resigning as 
cabinet ministers, as it was in some cases, resigning from his White House, suddenly, you know, distancing themselves because they saw the way the wind was blowing. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I think, um, I think uh, we might start to see a bit of that here, which is, you know, people thinking that Boris Johnson is not long for this, this political world and deciding that they'd rather jump off the train, you know, before, before it derailed. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that every person who jumps off, they will insist. It's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan, um, the, um, which, is, which was the spin we were getting last night. Henry, uh, lovely to speak to you. Henry Zeffman there, Associate Political yeah. of the Times, uh, bringing us up to date on what is going on in uh, Westminster right now. Right, now it's time for our columnist panel. And on a Friday, it's the duo known as Formel. It's James Forsyth and Melanie Reid. If only we had something to talk about in the world of politics today. Uh, it's, a bit dull, it's, it's just not very much going on now James you know um, uh, the way that these things work and you know the people behind the scenes Manira Mirza is not a household name uh, well until yesterday afternoon explain why her departure is, is so significant um, uh, about what it tells us both about the mood in number 10 but also you know but the, 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 the position of Boris Johnson's closest allies so she was in charge of policy for Boris Johnson and she has been with Boris Johnson for 14 years, you know, from City Hall to Vote Leave to Number 10. And there are all sorts of factions in, in Downing Street. Uh, but she is someone who is who has, you know, eschewed all of that kind of factional infighting. She is a she is a proper Boris Johnson loyalist. Um, she is someone who admires him and he admires her. You know, he named her as one of the five women who've had the most influence on, on, on him and his life and his way of thinking. And so for her to go and for her to go over a kind of over a kind of question of of, of, of morality, I think is very significant. And I think what it says is that, you know, the Savile line, the barb that he came up with in the comments on Monday, you know, she, she says this in her resignation letter, you know, that he was at the dispatch box under huge pressure. And Prime Ministers are always under pressure at the dispatch box in the comments. But Monday was, sub, was something else, even on that scale. And I think what she is saying, if you would just say sorry, you know, that would, that would do. But he wouldn't walk it back. And I think it fits this worry that, that she's not the only person in the Tory party to feel this. But but that choosing to weaponise that particular question is just beneath the dignity of the office of Prime Minister. And, and that, I think that is... That's the crucial thing about this, because it's... it's because I've, we've, we've talked about this um, uh, quite a bit this week. It is not untrue to say that Keir Starmer was in charge of the CPS when Jimmy Savile was not prosecuted. But he didn't have anything to do with it, and it is such a toxic sort of. I mean, that the, 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 you know, you should be able to win a political argument without trying to sort of cleverly imply that the leader of the opposition is a friend of paedophiles. That which is basically the you know what he's trying to do. And I think the point is that even people who've got quite a high tolerance for kind of the cut and thrust of politics, it, it, it is just a bit too much. Uh, or not a bit too much, a lot too much. And I think, you know, there is an... And someone said to me, oh, if this was a fraud case, would you object? And, you know, that he hadn't been personally involved. And and probably I wouldn't, but I think there is a kind of... There is an element that that, that child sexual abuse is is such a serious subject that to kind of of bring it into the House of Commons as a a political cudgel just just doesn't feel right. What, What have you made of the week, Melanie? 
I totally agree with James. I mean, I, I, I think that with by mentioning Savile, he brings up something that, I mean, Savile, we were all conned by Savile. We all failed children. And uh, I mean, I personally can't bear the sight of Jimmy Savile's face in a, in a magazine or a newspaper. And it, it's, it's as if he was so vile that we, it's Trumpian to, to mention him. I think it's that sense of we can all identify with unfair personal abuse. It's that sort of narrative of, of a despicable thing to say, um, which, which only, it's, it's sort of stuff that only, only Trump in politics, I think, has, we've seen so publicly do. Uh, that's why I think there's been this very strong reaction. Do you, this this Trump comparison, um, Jack, in the past people have said, oh, you know, but, you know in fact, even Donald Trump said that uh, Boris Johnson was Britain Trump. Um, and that's, that's, to me, felt overblown in the past. But there is this nervousness, isn't there, in sort of conservative, amongst conservative MPs about the the Borisification of the Conservative Party? And is he dragging it so low in the gutter that, that, that they, you know, you either have to sort of sign up to it or, or walk away? I think that, uh, I think that generally the, the Boris Trump comparison is unfair. Um, and, but I think in, in this instance, it, it's just, it was, it was, it, it, it was kind of punching below the belt. And he should just have kind of walked it back. And I think, see, I think that kind of, you know, I think there is a question here, which is, I think as Boris Johnson gets into trouble, I think there's some, someone very close to him said to me earlier this week, you know, he, he's listening to kind of decisive advice, not good advice. And I think he has been egged on by people uh, to, to, to kind of, you know, punch back, punch back, you know, they're trying to keep you down. You should get on the front foot, come out swinging. That's not the right response to this situation. Uh, he would be much better off with a bit of contrition, a bit of, I realise things have got to change. And I think there is this danger, which is that, you know, that, that, you know, that, that, that the effort to shore up Boris Johnson ends up, ends up hurting him rather than helping him. I think, you know, you look at Nadine Doris and Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg went on a long defence of the Savile remarks in the chamber on uh, yesterday. Um, Nadine Doris attacking any Tory MP who comes out and criticises him. I don't think this is helping Boris Johnson <laughs> uh, shore up his position. And I think that, you know, that, 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 that they, they've, got, they've got to just take a step back, breathe and handle the situation in a more appropriate manner. <laughs> Melanie, do you, do you think this is an operation capable of taking a step back, a deep breath, and calming down? No, I don't, because <laughs> they're not class. They have no. They, they're not classy. They really aren't classy. They they don't have that that sort of moral integrity. I'm sorry, but I feel that. And 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 James, um, on the subject of Rishi Sunak, and we've talked before. You've you've known Rishi Sunak for a long time. Is he close to the edge, do you think? I mean, yesterday was the first time he properly uh, distanced himself pointedly at a Downing Street lectern, distanced himself from the Prime Minister, having been, well, quiet if rather than being, um, you, you know, defending him. Is this a tipping point with Rishi Sunak, do you think? I think what he said yesterday was just true. Um, I can't <laughs> imagine him saying that line. I think it is as I think it is as simple as that. It's it's just it's just not his style. 
Do you think his style is more what the Conservative Party might be looking for? Because there seems to be a feeling amongst Tory MPs that, you know, this seems terminal for Boris Johnson, but they're concerned about the alternatives. I think they can. I think they can question. I think. I think the average Tory MP just wants this all to go away, and I, I think that the kind of. I think they they would like a, they would like to kind of get back to talking about you know, um, all the other things that they came into politics to do, and I think one of the things that they are finding so depressing is, as someone said to me yesterday, the government just spent £9 billion, pounds and it's not the top item on the 10 o'clock news, right? <laughs> um, it, 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 is, it, it is a kind of, it is a kind of, and I think this is, I think that they, I think you have to like, remember, I mean, the Times have done it, uh, I, I think it's very easy to be cynical about politicians but i think that there are lots of tory mps who you know they've got they've got issues that they that they care about and they want to be talking about those you know once someone messaged me yesterday after manila resigned saying you know this is really bad news for those of us who wanted to make it kind of make some progress on dealing with kind of problem gambling because she was very supportive of measures to try and tackle that and i think one of the things that is depressing Tory MPs at the moment is they're spending lots of time discussing the kind of you know the the, the kind of the, the 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 factional situation at number ten rather than talking about the issues that is what motivated them to come into public life in the first place. I think I mean, part... uh, Go on, Madeline. Uh, arguably, levelling up is is the single most important thing that could be done for this country, and it's you know it's like it's 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 not you know it's it's already been uh, uh, forgotten about. It's it's it, it, it is a shocking. And I suppose, but in normal times in politics, um, uh, MPs would be just, you know, backbench MPs would just be beetling about, you know, try to, like you said, James, try to get, you know, a change on gambling or, you know, I spoke to a Tory MP last night who said the single thing that I'm focusing on is the levelling up, getting some more devolution to my town. And my big concern is if we get plunged into a leadership contest, we're so close on this stuff, if we get plunged into a leadership contest, that will that will die away because whoever's the new leader will not talk about levelling up. They might try and do some of the same things. But, the you know, so they just want... But then they're, they're sort of trying... They're just sort of slightly shouting in the wind a bit, I think, in terms of, you know, if we could all just go back to normal, that would be great. But it just it feels like this might have been the point that we'd, we'd passed normal, James. I, I, I think this is the weird thing about this whole debate, right, is if you think back to, to Theresa May when we did the same thing, of kind of, you know, running around trying to find out how many letters there were or not. There was a massive policy divide there, you know. You know, I mean, how, what kind of Brexit did you think was best for the UK? Um, it, uh, what is weird about this situation is that there is no, there is no policy in the debate, right? You, you know, you, you, are, you aren't, people's view on what should happen next is, is not determined by, uh, whether they're in favour of more mayors or against more mayors or, you know, what, what they think about, you know, uh, you name it, you know, any, any big issue of the day, levelling up or, or net zero or, or the like. It, it's weird because this is a, essentially a debate about what people think of, you know, the Tory party is basically split over the, the Boris Johnson question, not a policy question. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah that, that's what I thought. I thought most of the people were signed up on the same, um, on the same thing. Um, uh, Melanie, let's just quickly talk about exams. Uh, Lord, ah. your Lord Young of Grafham uh, is obviously uh, Margaret Thatcher's favourite favourite businessman. Uh, you know, enterprise czar to, to successive uh, Tory leaders when they used to focus on those sorts of things. 
Uh, he's called for exams to be replaced by continuous assessment. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I, I, I speak as someone who, who, if I could remember all I learned for exams and then have forgotten about, I'd be a genius, you know? <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, you spend your life cramming, doing overnighters so you can get through exams. Um, you, you, uh, and, and then, and then you're, you're, you're successful. Whereas the people who, um, if you can't rise to the occasion and do that, um, and, and they, 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 they can't stand the strain or the, or the, or, or, or the, the sort of being put on the, the point like that, then they, the poor souls are, are, are immediately damned to failure. Yeah. And it's very, very hard. It, it, makes, it, it is a fabulous, I think it's, it's, it's a fabulous thing to say because I think for an awful lot of people, exams are not the way to get through life. They just can't, they don't have that, they're not wired that way. Yeah. Um, they work really hard all the time and then they fail in exams. It's it's not good, um, I, you know. It, it's public schools spoon feed kids and and and, they, and that's they the thing is the, prep, the prepping and the learning how to yeah. do exams is so so key. What, just finally, James, your view on this? Should we scrap exams? Uh, I, 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 for once, I disagree with Mel. I I I kind of agree with exams because I think exams are about pressure and lots of life is about pressure. And I mean, they they are they are they are good they are good preparation for life in that in that respect. I think. Melanie Reed and James Forsyth there. And of course, you can read James in The Times every Friday. Melanie's in The Times Saturday magazine every Saturday. You can also find my column in a Saturday as well. Uh, just uh, get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Fed Box. Up next is the history of the press gallery. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. It's been quite the week in uh, British politics. It's fair to say I was down in the House of Commons this week, sitting in the press gallery for the first time. I was trying to think what it was for the first time in definitely months. It might even be more than a year since I last actually sat in the press gallery, looking down on the House of Commons, sitting next to Patrick McGuire like Statler and Waldorf, watching Boris Johnson facing MPs over the Sue Gray report update, as I think we've got to call it. 
but what does it what does it all mean? We talk about the press gallery a lot. We talk about the lobby a lot. They're two different things. Journalists get very cross about them. Uh, and what we thought we'd do is try to explain all of that. There are more than three hundred journalists from across newspapers, radio, online, TV, all reporting from the Houses of Parliament. We've got passes. We can come and go as we please. And we've got a special area set aside in the press gallery, looking down on the on the Commons chamber. But it wasn't always like this. So what we thought we'd do is take you back in time and take a look at how the press gallery came about and how Jenis had to fight to be able to even report on what went on in the House of Commons. And I'm delighted. He's back. Nick Mays, archivist from News UK. Uh, was obviously the parent company of the Times. Um, and he's brought some old stuff, some old things for us to look at. Morning, Nick. Morning, Matt. I'm excited. I told you when you came in not to show me it because I want to look at it as we go along. Um, uh, let's go right the way back. We're going all the way back to 1738. And there was concern that people were reporting what was happening in the House of Commons and uh, people really didn't like the idea of that. Let's take a listen. That it is a high indignity to and a notorious breach of privilege of this House for any news writer of letters or other papers to give therein any account of the debates or other proceedings of this House and that this House will proceed with the utmost severity against such offenders. So, Nick, this was April the 13th, 1738. That was clearly uh, voiced by an actor and not a recording from 1738. <laughs> uh, but the House resolved that it was a, a breach of privilege of the House for anyone to report what was going on in the House of Commons. Indeed it was. Um, bizarre as it may seem in the 21st century. And what was the, what was the argument at the time for why this would be a bad idea? I think largely um, that they just wanted to retain control and I don't think they got the concept yet that actually their constituents, the few that there were in those days, um, actually, and the public generally wanted to hear what was going on in Parliament or read about it and, uh, you know, and learn what their representatives were saying and what was being debated. And as part of the debate, there was even some, there was some concern that if it was going to be reported, people might start giving exciting speeches designed for the public outside rather than just for the, the chamber itself. Yes, grandstanding. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't go on today. Surely not. <laughs> uh, surely not. Surely not. And so what, what was happening at this time? People were trying to go in and report uh, what was happening. Yes, the reporters would go in, still try and get in. Um, they would go into the gallery, um, uh, but they weren't allowed to take notes. Um, so you have the concept um, of either scribbling surreptitiously or trying to memorise speeches and then dash out and write them down, which is not always the best way of doing something. <laughs> I mean, as someone... Because uh, my first job was working in the press gallery for the Press Association. Yeah. And uh, as someone who was under such strict instructions, to, you know, your shorthand had to be good, you had to double-check your quotes on a tape recording as well, the idea that you just had to sit there and try and remember, and this is partly why people who had reputations for giving great speeches in the House of Commons, but we don't have any actual verbatim accounts of them because basically what would be reported was X gave a, a you know a stirring speech on this subject, but we don't have any quotes because nobody could could report them verbatim. Yeah, I mean you might get a summary at the best probably in those days, and uh, it sort of moved its way forward um from from that sort of strange world the biggest problem for the reporters was just actually getting the access because the public would go in and you, know, you couldn't get a seat and all of that so yeah. th- then uh, so in april the house of commons resolved it'll be a breach of privilege if you uh, try to report on what's happening in the house of commons well th- this is where the times comes in the times is uh, furious about this and uh, the times in a leading article in may 2014 
Uh, this uh, it pointedly noted the absence of any report of the uh, of the debate, uh, stating the reason as that in consequence of the enforcing of an order on the journals prohibiting the admission of strangers until the conclusion of prayers, our reporters were excluded in common with those of the other papers. When the doors were opened, their disappointment was extreme at finding the gallery nearly filled with the friends of members or persons smuggled into the gallery through the body of the house. So, And this is what you've got. This is exciting. This is when I get to be all, you know, um, uh, antiques roadshow. You've got it there. Yeah. So th- this is the issue of May the 24th, 1803. And this is, a, this is an original? This is the original, an original copy. Um, so this is the point where Napoleon had declared war on England on uh, May the 22nd. The debate in the House of Commons took place on the 23rd. And when the reporters turned up, they found that that, that uh, MPs had packed the gallery with their friends and they couldn't get in and report the debate in the House of Commons. So as you will see at the top of page one, um, it cheerfully, uh, under the heading of parliamentary intelligence, um, is the report from the House of Lords. So this, uh, is, this, is, a, so this is a full front page um, uh, leader article bemoaning the absence of... Uh, that they weren't able to report on what was happening. No, the, lead, the leader comes much later. This is the actual reporting of the debate in the House of Lords. Oh, OK. Which co- covers the whole of page one, page two, and... Oh, wow. Page three, and half of the last <laughs> page four. <laughs> That's a... I mean, you have to be pretty dedicated, a, a, a watcher of the House of Lords. But that, so the point is that, that you could get into the House of Lords, but not into the House of Commons. The same problems applied in both oh, okay, houses. Right, right, and right. in this case, they were they were able to get in the House of Lords, but they were not able to get into the House of Commons on that day. So, because we were talking about the... So this is, what, 1803? 1803. 1738, they passed this um, rule. It was a breach of the of privilege, if you reported. Had that been dropped by this point? Oh, no. Oh, right. <laughs> so it was, still, it was still... They could still consider it... And so the only way you could get any reporting from the House of Parliament was to be sort of renegades, smuggle yourself in. How on earth did anyone remember all of this without making any notes? They were they, By this stage, they had got to the point where um, they were allowed in yeah. to the gallery. There was more recognition. Yes. They were allowed to take notes, but it's still... It's still technically against the rules. It's Well, it's still not only technically against it, but um, as we will see as we tell the story... Um, it's a battle between yeah. the between the newspapers and uh, the MPs, which lasts this is, this for a while just, later. This is just so. I mean, uh, I actually have the newspaper from eighteen oh three, price six pence. At times, it's slightly more expensive now, but it's still very good value. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so that's what happened. The, the, um, the Times, in his leader, said the reporters couldn't get into the gallery because MPs had packed the gallery out with their friends. Uh, um, uh, to try and stop them getting in. Now, most of the uh, most of them then stayed there, denying reports any chance to record the debate at all. This is what the end of the article in the Times uh, said. It concluded with this appeal: "We cannot contend with impossibilities, but we sincerely trust that some arrangement will be shortly made to remedy an inconvenience which equally affects the people and their representatives." So, this is the Times of London calling for a solution. It is indeed, and it produced an immediate response. Which was? Uh, which was that uh, that same morning on the 24th, the Speaker, having no doubt uh, read the Times, um, Charles Abbott agreed to change the rules of admission. 
Um, in his diary, he records that he arranged with the sergeant of arms that the gallery door should be opened every day as required at 12, and that the sergeant would let the housekeeper understand that the news writers might be let in in their usual places, as being understood to have the order of particular members. And so it's down to him, and press gallery journalists, you know, this, we're, we're, we're well trained to remember this, it's down to him that we have a separate, the, the sort of, the, if you think of the House of Commons chamber as being a rectangle, uh, the two long to the two long sides are reserved for MPs and peers. Uh, one one end is for the public, and the other end is just for journalists, and we're the only people who are allowed to sit in it. And that's all down to the Times. It is where we started. So that granted some level of rights, but um, we were still we were allowed in before the admission of strangers who had members' orders. But the problem was the ruling didn't apply every day, only on important occasions. Right, so how do, we, how do we then get to the next bit? That, that, that journalists can come in and... It's, it's, I mean, we're talking about... This is like 200 years ago. It's not, yep. it's not like the, the Middle Ages. Mm. That there was still an issue of re- journalists being able to report yep. on what was being discussed in the House of yep. Parliament. You've I was got, gonna, you've got I was something else with there. J- just, just to prove it, yeah. this is the following day's issue. So this is Here May the 25th. And as you will see... Uh, at the top, Parliamentary Intelligence, now from the House of Commons. Now from the House of Commons. So this is the second part. Um, this is moving the next day's business and more discussion on the wall. It's from 1803. Um, so, again. And again, the same length. Yeah, that, that's the sound. That's the sound of a copy of The Times from 1803. I mean, phenomenal amounts of uh, detailed reporting from yep. uh, from the House of Commons. Again, not, not matters of sort of um, verbatim. Uh, it's more of a, of a summary, isn't it, rather than... It's lo- it, there's a lot of verbatim in here when oh, you read it. It, it, it is it's very, very lengthy. It is very, very lengthy. I don't know they necessarily reported every, every speech word. in yes. it. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Where they did, it's pretty much verbatim. Very good. So then what happens next? What happens next is that um, we're allowed, obviously, in, we're allowed to move, and we start to get the development from there of more regimentation and more belief. So the House of Commons starts to set aside this one row. Yep. Uh, it's where the Speaker can't see them. Yes, because we which sit is above the Speaker, which is really good. Um, well, you do need to be careful, I know from experience, not to drop your pencil over the um, over into the chamber. That is probably still a breach of privilege. Yes. I think somebody... I've got a feeling Tom Newton Dunn once dropped his phone. I, I, I don't want to malign him, but <laughs> uh, uh, you do need to be careful you don't knock anything over. Anyway, go on. So in the House of, um, in the House of Lords, there was no public gallery. So at that time, the reporters were permitted to stand with the other strangers behind the bar of the house um, and listen to debates there, and the same rules for taking notes were applying. Uh, When the trial of Queen Caroline happens in 1820, at that point, um, the reporters are provided with a segmented space for themselves because there were so many lawyers attending (laughs) and members of the public that they just wanted to keep the reporters corralled into one space. Okay, yeah, into one spot. But at least it then gives them a space. Yeah. Um, and then the first formal gallery arrives in 1831 in the House of Lords. Which is when, that's when Charles Dickens was uh, a press gallery reporter. It's briefly. When, yep, it's when Charles Dickens um, is there. And um, it still remains, um, Hansard records the event taking place of this space being provided. And Riley notes, though according to their lordship's standing order, it still remains a breach of privilege to report the debate. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, it's, it's good to know that politics is just as mad. That, that, so they set aside a, a, a space for reporters. There's still technically a breach yes. uh, to to actually actually report it, even though the people were doing that. What else have you got there for me? I can see some more old things to look at. Ah, there's no more old things oh. at the moment. Um, what we are, what we do now is to is, is to transition a little bit onwards because having got the space yeah. and got ourselves in and some rights, we then find that there was a long-running battle, really, from 1803 through the 1830s. Um, where Parliament and the reporters are establishing their relative positions. Yeah. And the breach of privilege is being used in a variety of ways to try and um, influence... To curtail what's being reported. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Sometimes to curtail what's being yeah. reported and to just generally... Is it is a useful tool for MPs to attack the press with. Yeah. They can summon editors and printers and so on before the bar. And this actually happened with a Times printer? It did indeed. Um, in 1831, April 1831, um, there was a debate on um, the idea of producing a tax to alleviate the, um, the poverty in Ireland. And um, there was a debate in the House of Commons, uh, which led to the Times, um, who was supportive of that, criticising the opponents, led by the Earl of Limerick, who... Um, and the opponents were described as <clears throat> men or things with human pretensions. Wow. Nay, with lofty <laughs> privileges who do not blush to treat the mere proposal of establishing a fund for the relief of the diseased or helpless Irish with brutal ridicule and almost impious scorn. Amazing. You don't get, you don't get um, writing like that these days. Uh, but, but not everyone was critical, though. But Disraeli, Disraeli was supportive, wasn't he? There were, men, there were many people on both sides of this. Um, so on the 18th which was the first day you could do so, the Earl raised the issue in the House of Lords and um, it was determined that John Joseph Lawson, the Times printer, would be summoned before the bar. Yeah. He appeared on the 19th and uh, refused to divulge who had written the article. Much more entertainingly, um, the Lord Chancellor, Henry Broom, then informed him that the House had determined that the paragraph which had appeared in the paper of which he was the printer was a false and scandalous libel, and that their lordships were then ready to hear anything which Lawson might have to say in his defence. So they'd already judged him. Yeah. <laughs> We've already decided you were, you, you've broken the rules. Yes. What have you got well, to say Well, not even the rules. You're yeah, actually yeah, yeah. now being yeah, accused yeah. of a libel, yeah. not just a breach of privilege somewhere, because this is not reporting debates. This mm. is an attack on a leader. So Lawson um, then expresses his regret that they, this should have appeared in the Times, um, anything which would be calculated to give offence either, either to their lordships in general or to the noble earl in particular. And he then goes on to uh, provide his, um, mayor, well, his, his explanation, saying that they should be aware that owing to the rapidity with which a journal like the Times must be printed and the multiplicity of articles which necessarily found their way into it, it was almost impossible for him, using every diligence in his power, to peruse every separate paragraph which appeared in the paper. And he then regrets the fact that this one had obviously escaped <laughs> and got in. So we need, just, just because we're, we're slightly conscious of time, just to fast forward a bit, how did the, the privilege issue resolve itself? Well, in this case, um, he is actually... Um, commit, uh, they want to commit him to prison. Right. Uh, yeah, the Duke of Wellington and others support an alternative motion to actually have him held in the custody of the Usher of the Black Rod and held at Oliver's Coffee House on the premises at Westminster. Right. There's two days of debates um, involving this, and at the end, he is reprimanded and discharged. 
So that was the that's the end of that case. But then the the, the issue with the uh, of privilege that lasted for a really long time, didn't it? The pri- the privilege carries on, and uh, possibly the most entertaining um, example of this is a couple of years later with Daniel O'Connell, and he um, he brought a breach of privilege against both uh, both the Times and the Morning Chronicle, saying he was determined not to submit to the despotism of newspapers. And that if not reported himself, he would not permit others to be reported by bringing the matter to a decisive issue. Which is utterly bizarre. So he's now asking for a breach of privilege for not being reported, yes. which is yeah, a yeah, compliance yeah. with the order. But the, the rule on, on privilege, that lasted until 1971, didn't it? It did indeed. They held on to this process right the way to through. To have this sort of hanging over journalist all the way yep, through. But they all... didn't... I don't think they really used it after, really after the 1830s. I, th- I suspect there was a reason for that. So we've, uh, we've discovered that the Times... Uh, it's the Times what won it. That's how journalists got their seats in the press gallery. Uh, but it took a very long time uh, for things to settle down and to end this issue of it being a breach of privilege to report what was going on in the House of Commons. That didn't happen until the 1970s. Well, we arrive at the 1970s and along comes a young Philip Webster, uh, political journalist uh, for The Times, went on to become Times political editor and joins me now. Hi, Phil. Hi there. Uh, we've also got Times Radio's very own Carol Walker as well. Hi, Carol. Yes, good morning, Matt. So, Phil, uh, paint a picture for us. What was it like when you started working in the, uh, in the press gallery in the House of Commons? Totally different. Um, we reported the proceedings in the House of Commons. When I joined the Times in February 1973, there was a parliamentary staff of 12, can you believe? These were the people who had to uh, report the proceedings in the Commons and the Lords. Uh, it wasn't quite verbatim, but we were regarded as the second Hansard in those days, the Times. So we had 12 people whose job was purely to produce the reports on proceedings in both houses. Um, and in the lobby in those days, there were just three members of the lobby uh, reporters, and there were, as I say, a dozen. We reported. And who, who were the um, top dogs in that, Phil? Because the, the, there was all the people doing the sort of serious reporting in the House of Commons, and the lobby were just the ones who loitered literally in the lobby and reported on other things. Who, yes, who was they, seen they, as the most, Im, most important at that point? Oh, the lobby. The lobby was seen as a, as a rather elevated group. <laughs> uh, we were, we as they were still the, do. Uh, we, we were at the coalface writing very fast shorthand. I wouldn't have got on the Times. I wouldn't have had the, uh, the lovely career I had at the Times had I not been able to write very fast shorthand. And how fast are we talking about, Phil? Because I managed to get 100 words a minute. It's not that... I still use it every day, but it's not as good as that now. How fast was yours? Well, I had 180, but that wasn't (gasps) enough. Wow. That was not enough. Uh, In the early days, I found myself struggling, and it became faster in those early days. The hardest guy of all to report for speed was Harold Wilson. I remember when I did my, my sort of interview to become a parliamentary reporter... The, the boss at the time, a guy called Alan Wood, just threw me into the <laughs> gallery in that time seat in the front row, right in the middle, and said, right, report Prime Minister's questions. And it was Wilson against Heath. And Wilson, um, somehow I managed to get enough down to convince Alan Wood that I could write fast shorthand. But it, having 180 wasn't enough, because in those days, no tape recorders were allowed in the Commons. The Hansard reporters, who had to do the absolute verbatim, they didn't have tape recorders either. They had to be able to write shorthand at that speed. And several of them had speeds of over 200. 
That's incredible. I can't even imagine doing that. And uh, Phil, just explain the the phone boxes just outside the press gallery. Were you <laughs> using them to uh, to file, um, or, or how are you getting your your copy back to the Times? Well, for the the, the um, we had a an antiquated machine for the parliamentary team, uh, a sort of telex machine into we, we typed our copy, and then we had a telex operator who put it into this this fearful machine, and somehow that was transmitted back to headquarters. This is the telephone boxes were essentially for the uh, lobby reporters and the parliamentary sketch writers who would race out of the chamber at different times and go to those uh, telephone boxes and phone their copy direct to copy takers in their office. Um, and they were used a lot. Um, and sometimes when you... Um, you had to get a, a parliamentary piece across quickly. You would use that t- tape recorder and go to a tape, uh, go to a copy taker back in the office. Yeah, there's a sort of row of sort of. They look, I think they're now used to like keep the vacuum and the cleaning stuff in. But just outside the press gallery, there's a row of narrow wooden, uh, mm. sort of look like little cupboards. And you go in there, and they've got a seat, uh, a shelf to put your notepad on. And a little ashtray, so you could sit in there and shut the door and smoke yourself silly. Um, Carol, when did you join? join first uh, enter Parliament. Well, I joined the lobby in 1996, so comparatively recently, and of course it was very different by then. Not least because uh, parliamentary proceedings were broadcast. Thank goodness, because my <laughs> shorthand was absolutely rubbish and I would have been in big trouble. Um, but that made a huge difference. And it was interesting that Phil picked up on the fact that he was a lobby correspondent and there were a separate team of parliamentary reporters. And that is a difference that goes back to the 1880s. The parliamentary reporters are there to report on the proceedings on the floor of the House. The lobby journalists are there to look at things more widely. There's even a definition of them going back to the 1880s. Of course, these days, those two roles are very much merged and Mm. all Westminster journalists will um, not only be lobby journalists, roam around the lobbies, go to the briefings at number 10, but they'll also go into Parliament for the big proceedings. And I think what has changed so much uh, since those days when, as as we were hearing in that fascinating insight um, of the early history, when people tried to stop events being reported, and I should say even during the Second World War, Churchill tried to get the contributions on the floor of of the House from his political opponents censored on the grounds that it might (laughs) undermine war morale. Um, But not only are those proceedings there and everyone can listen to them, there are also transcripts available on Hansard within hours. What a godsend that is. I know. that's. A, um, I mean, that's such a... Because my first job was in the press gallery for the Press Association. And, you know, and actually PA, I think, the only ones who still guarantee to have a reporter in there all the time, you know, reporting. But the fact that, yeah, now PA, um, the Hansard uh, quotes are up within an hour or so now. Didn't happen in my day. Certainly <laughs> not. But what's fascinating, Matt, isn't it, is that... You and most of the rest of us, I no longer have a lobby pass. I can't just wander in there, but still want to be there in the press gallery on the big occasions. And what are we talking about this week? We're talking about Boris Johnson's jibe at uh, Sir Keir Starmer about his role when he was director of public prosecutions. And as you know, when you're there in the chamber... You're not just anymore listening to what's being said and trying to note down the good quotes. 
you're looking uh, not just at those loyal supporters of Boris Johnson who are forming a little donut, <laughs> as we used to call it in Teleworld, around the Prime Minister cheering him on, but perhaps all the ranks behind him who are sitting there looking very cross with their arms folded. And that sort of colour and atmosphere and detail is the sort of thing that you only get when you're actually there in the press gallery on the big occasions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, being there this week and being able to see not just what Boris Johnson was saying, but the facial expressions of Tory MPs, particularly of Theresa May, yeah. uh, was uh, was pretty key. Um, and uh, just finally, Phil, how did technology change and sort of make your job easier in doing all of that? Well, uh, I suppose when I left the parliamentary team um, to join uh, the lobby, and that was in the early 80s, um, we were still in a position where we didn't have mobile phones uh, to um, to use and to file our copy. Um, I suppose the change, the real change, came in in the nineties uh, when mobile phones arrived, and suddenly we could be on a foreign trip and filing uh, our copy from wherever we <laughs> happened to be. But in uh, up until that point, I remember travelling with. Um, Neil Kinnock, for example, we got stuck one day. It's an old story, but we were in the uh, in the bush in Zimbabwe, and we had a great story because of we landed at the wrong airstrip, and we all wanted to file it, but none of us had a way of filing it. And the idea of finding a telephone box in the uh, in the Zimbabwe bush um, <laughs> was out of the question. And uh, we did a we had to have an agreement between the group that nobody would get out of the little bus that was carrying us to a hotel in Inyanga, and, that, and then when we arrived in Inyanga, it would be every man, woman for themselves, and they would race to get the, the phones uh, in the hotel. There happened to be three, and I have to tell you that The Sun and The Times got two of them. <laughs> Quite right, too. Quite right, too. I know, and now you can just sit happily wherever you are, you can file from anywhere, which is obviously uh, to the delight of news desks. It's slightly less nice if you're um, uh, tried not to do any work. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast this week. You can obviously read all about what we've been discussing online at thetimes.co.uk. Just sign up, get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. And if you want to come on and play our quiz, can you get to number 10? Just email studio at times.radio and throughout February, I'll give you a pair of tickets to my stand-up tour if you come on. That's studio at times.radio. But for now, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.